Colonial virus is why I can't live. Colonial virus is why I can't breathe. Colonial virus, yo, that thing gotta go. We don't wanna have to deal with this virus no more. Uhuru! Welcome to the People's War Radio Show. I'm Dr. Matsumela Odom. And I'm Mwambi Tangu. Uhuru means freedom in Swahili, and freedom is on our minds 24-7. Today's episode is entitled, Black and Brown Unity. The time is now. Our guests today are Harry Simone of Union del Barrio and Marco Amaral, school teacher and South Bay Unified School District Board Trustee in San Diego, California. Today we explore the unity of black and brown people. African people and the indigenous people of the Americas share a bond that is the foundation of parasitic capitalism and colonialism. Capitalism was born from the theft of African people, African land, and African labor, along with the genocide of the indigenous and the theft of their lands and resources throughout the world. During the period of colonial slavery, As many as 15,000 Africans escaped to freedom from the U.S. to Mexico, where Vicente Guerrero, an African leader, had abolished slavery in 1829. Mexican workers in Texas helped Africans escape and fought against slavery. In the 1860s, African soldiers from the U.S. went to Mexico to join the Mexican forces in opposition to French imperialism. In 1915, amidst the Mexican Revolution, Mexican rebels released what is known as El Plan de San Diego, San Diego, Texas, that is. El Plan de San Diego called for the unity of African, indigenous, and Asian people, as well as the overthrow of white power and U.S. colonialism. The unity of African, Mexican, and indigenous people was an essential part of the African Revolution and the Chicano Revolution of the 1960s and 70s, as seen in the unity of the Black Panther Party and the Brown Berets. On the streets of Chicago, Chairman Fred Hampton organized the original Rainbow Coalition by uniting African, Latino, and even white working class revolutionaries. In the California prison system, Comrade George Jackson organized a similar coalition. Hence, they were both assassinated. Both the African Revolution in the 60s and the Chicano Revolution in the 70s were defeated by U.S. counterinsurgency. Today, more than ever, the conditions are ripe for black and brown solidarity. In California, black and Latino people make up nearly 80% of the people in prison. Black and Latino people earn, on average, 60% the median income earned by whites. The COVID-19 rates for Africans, Latinos, and indigenous people in the U.S. are three to four times those of whites. Black and brown people live together, work together, go to school together. But those sites have also been places of conflict, stoked by the colonial contradictions of poverty, prison, and police brutality. Today, we discuss the way forward. Marco Amaral is a graduate of the University of California, Berkeley, and an educator for children with special needs in the San Diego South Bay. He is a member of the South Bay Union Board of Trustees. Harry Simone 
is a 28-year veteran in Union del Barrio and a member of the Central Committee and head of Agitation and Propaganda. He is a lifelong educator, media producer, and media scholar. Uhuru Harry, just like among Africans, we see COVID-19 cases and deaths raging among Mexican and indigenous people, especially among agricultural and food processing workers. What are Mexican workers in the Mexican community facing in relationship to this pandemic? Uhuru comrades, uh, on behalf of uh, the Central Committee and the general membership of Unión de Barrio, uh, we want to thank uh, the Uhuru movement in, in general and, and uh, both of you two comrades for this invitation to participate in, uh, in this uh, important uh, radio show. It's a demonstration of uh, uh, black and brown unity that's uh, so desperately needed in these uh, in times of intensified struggle. Uh, it's a pleasure to, to, to be here. And, and uh, as, as I said, uh, I want to restate uh, 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 and emphasize the, the historical decades-long unity between the African People's Socialist Party and Unión del Barrio. Um, as to this, uh, this question of uh, COVID-19, that's raging and, and burning across our barrios and in our uh, black and brown neighborhoods uh, and, and indigenous uh, reservations. We're on the same page with the with uh, the the Huru movement and, and Chairman O'Malley when uh, you call this uh, virus the colonial virus because uh, really in the, in a in a in a nutshell that's really what it's about. Uh, if you look across uh, this country, uh, the the it's not just a question of uh, lack of access to healthcare. And a, and a lack of, uh, of information, uh, of accurate information in terms of best practices on how to on how to survive and, and, and mitigate the negative impact of this virus. Uh, we see that this virus is uh, is most actively uh, attacking our neighborhoods, our barrios, uh, precisely in those areas where this system is is, is dependent uh, uh, and and is needed to, to to maintain and advance its its levels of, of uh, consumption. Uh, you know, one of the most uh, clearest, I think, uh, and uh, uh, examples or demonstrations of this, you know, parasitic relationship with the system and COVID-19 in the, in the, in the context of COVID-19 uh, was the situation that came down with the meat packers uh, and, and the meat packing industry. You know, there was a time when uh, meat, uh, uh, red meat was uh, in short supply because of the impact of the virus. And, and really what was happening is because a lot of the workers uh, I'd say the the majority of the workers in that industry are are raza, are are, are uh, people of uh, uh, Mexican and Latin American heritage, indigenous people uh, from from Mexico and and Central America working in that industry, and and it was burning through these workers, and and it got to the point where the Trump administration uh, uh, gave immunity to the meatpacking industry as far as uh, not having to worry about the health of the workers in order to guarantee red meat uh, for the plates and for the stomachs of of uh, of this, uh, uh, you know, uh, reactionary uh, parasitic society, and so you know they were literally eating, eating us, eating our our well being, and, and consuming, and in and, and exchange for for our lives. And you know, there's so many uh, more examples of that, but that was really the clearest one. And so you see that the uh, the shortage of red meat has has sort of been mitigated these last few weeks and months because uh, of that protections, those protections, those federal protections given to the meat packers. Uh, where they don't have to guarantee the health and safety of their of their workers. You know, you see the COVID-19 burning through the reservations of this country. Right here in the neighborhood that I'm in, in South Bay, San Diego, it's uh, uh, zip code 92154. It's, it's one of the, it's the, the brownest, it's the, it's the uh, zip code with the most uh, Mexican working class people in, in the county. 
And, um, you know, this is also one of the highest rates of, uh, of COVID-19 uh, infections and deaths. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a similar situation that's happening in Tijuana. Uh, there's all sorts of, of, of different uh, examples I could provide. Um, ultimately, the most terrible example is in the prisons, right, where it's burning through. And, you know, uh, you already mentioned the high rate of, of incarceration that our communities suffer and, and COVID-19 is burning through the prisons. Uh, um, San Quentin just came out with the, this terrible crisis right here in San Diego, the Otay Mesa uh, detention center has got is filled with uh, raza from Central America and uh, asylum seekers, and and uh, you know they've been there's an ongoing struggle to 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 get the the raza uh, liberated from from that space, which is a privately run a for profit uh, detention center. So the the idea of the prisons is is really them monetizing this process, these private prisons, and and the fact that they've uh, now are raging with COVID nineteen and inside these prisons is it's just crazy. That's just like a it's a meat grinder. It's the same relationship that we had with the, the meat processing plants, except the prisons are, are producing other kinds of uh, uh, consumer goods. And, and, uh, and it's most of our people. It's most of our communities that are locked up in there. Uhuru, Uhuru, Harry, thanks for that. Because, yeah, we know that the California prison system right now is really raging, uh, especially San Quentin, uh, a place where uh, over half the prisoners there uh, have tested positive uh, for COVID-19. Uh, Marco, you're on the board of trustees for the South Bay Union School District, which is located on the border of San Diego and Tijuana, a region hit hard by COVID-19, as Harry was just saying. What's your position on the reopening of schools? Uhuru, Michael, Mwambi, uh, Harry, solidarity to all of you, and much love, un abrazo, uh, especially during these times. These, this is my position on the reopening of schools. If we had a political system that values education in the same light that this parasitic system sees the saving of our banks as holy, we would be able to open schools sometime this year. Because if we had a system that values our schools like we value our banks, we would see community schools out throughout our barrios. We would have three or four times the amount of schools where overcrowding wasn't an issue in both times of disease and in times of relative normalcy, where every kid and every family had all the educational tools necessary to succeed. To this day, eight months after knowing without a doubt that COVID-19 was in this country, there are still custodians in almost every school district in the country that don't have the proper PPE. We can't open our schools because we live in a colonial system of education that is rooted in suppression of the collective mind and in admiration of the egotistical mind. If our education system stressed the dialectical model between educator and educant, one where it focused on the needs of the oppressed and not the oppressor, we would be able to manage an education system that was better able to meet the needs of all our students, all our families during any time. So to answer your question, no, we shouldn't open our schools. All right. Thanks for that. Thanks for that. Now, I want to go back to possibly Harry, but also you, Marco, because one of the things that I just heard you say was that uh, in times of normalcy, mm. but one thing, one thing that we do know is that even in times of normalcy, our schools are essential tools of the larger system of colonialism. So how do you see some of your work? And Harry, how do, how do you see your work and the work of Union del Barrio as fighting against that system of colonialism within our education mm -hmm. system? Mm -hmm. 
so just just to uh you know restate how how i stated that so under normalcy in a in a system of education that is totally antithetical to the one we have today right unfortunately today normalcy still means death uh for our communities normalcy under white supremacy under this colonial education system still means an undereducated undercultured uh and, and and by culture i mean uh like freire stated culture cures and unfortunately our communities right in our schools uh, because it's centered on a politics of whiteness it they will always they will always come out disadvantaged um and, and so there is no normalcy there is no normalcy during this time and i, I think harry i know Unión del barrio has done incredible incredible decolonial work around education such as escuelitas done among many other things and i'm sure you can elaborate way more on that Thank you, Marco. Uh, I can elaborate on that. I think this, uh, just to start off, uh, you know, man, I, I, I want to um, emphasize something in terms of the terminology or like really kind of clarify the terminology because right now there's a lot of uh, discussion and, and, and uh, support for this, uh, the concept of decolonial, decolonial education and, and decolonial uh, schooling, decolonial. It's a, it's a big catchphrase or, or a term that, that floats almost to the point where it's kind of lost its meaning. Uh, I want to emphasize that because, you know, it's been, you know, decades where Unión del Barrio and, and, the, and the party, uh, APSP and, and the Huru movement more broadly, have been talking about uh, colonialism as the, the true enemy. And uh, out of uh, that system of, of colonial oppression emerges an entire edifice of, of, of capitalism, imperialism, and the rest of it. So I, I want to emphasize something that's not necessarily decolonial, uh, the work that Unión del Barrio does and, and, and my role in it, I think more than anything else, is anti-colonial. And I think that's a, a really key difference, meaning that, you know, we actively understand the system uh, uh, as a function of power, not as a, a, a function of just uh, a cultural question, but a question of uh, how we get ourselves some power. And so really in the educational system, I'm an educator. I, I, I taught at Memorial for, for, for uh, right there in Logan for, for a long time in San Diego Unified. And, and uh, I always understood my role as a high school teacher that I was working in a, an institution of, of the state, of the system. It didn't matter how good of a teacher or how progressive a teacher I was, I was in the, uh, an institution of the system. And that institution is designed, uh, Alpha Omega, to reproduce the system. So no matter what truths I was able to tell my students, uh, I would argue that, you know, ethnic studies and all the different things that in spaces that have been won recently, um, those uh, in as much as they become acceptable to the system, uh, uh, become uh, a part of the system and reproduce the system, even if it's a, a more kind of diverse and inclusive form of colonial oppression. And, and, I'm, and I'm being uh, uh, very direct and, and I think it's important for our for our movements to to uh, really do a self-assessment in, in terms of what these things and how meaningful they are. And that's not to just kind of reject them offhand on principle. That would be irresponsible because these these struggles, for for example, in ethnic studies have, have value. Uh, they have a history, a people's history. But in, in, in as much as they get institutionalized, they get tainted by the system. There is no uh, reform. Uh, the, the educational system in this country can, there is no... Uh, degree of reform that could be done that will make it a liberatory education. 
the only way you can have a liberatory education is if it comes from a liberatory process or liberatory organization. And that's where Escuela Aslan comes in. We founded it back in the early 1980s, um, 1980. Uh, it started in discussion and planning in 1982, and the first sessions were held in 1986. We still have it. We just had our last session on Saturday. And um, that's our school. We teach uh, our Escuela students. Escuela Aslan is there to teach and provide our students with the tools for liberation, uh, anti-colonial liberation, not necessarily for them to feel good about who they are or to like uh, and, and, and enjoy friendships with uh, black and brown and the rest of it. Uh, we teach uh, solidarity and comradeship. And so uh, that's a, it's, a, it's really kind of like a, a fundamentally different approach to the question of education, I, I'd say. And it's key because, you know, there's been a lot of uh, uh, short-term reforms and victories within the educational system, especially in the state of California. Uh, just a few days ago, uh, uh, there was a legal decision to require uh, an ethnic studies uh, course for for students, right? And so there, there are positive steps, but uh, for those of us who participate and, and, and are active in those struggles, I always have to keep in mind that the system uh, accepts it. There's got to be something wrong with it. It's designed to reap. The system will never allow an education uh, that allows a, a, a shifting of, of power relations. You are listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our show today is entitled Black and Brown Unity. The time is now. And our guests are Harry Simone of Union del Barrio, and Marco Amaral, school teacher in South Bay Union School District trustee in San Diego, California. Harry, throughout the southwestern states of the United States, horizontal violence between black and brown people continues to plague us, both in the community and the prisons. What is the basis for this and how can we overcome it to unite? Now, the the idea here is, is because we're uh, oppressed people um, and, and in close proximity, uh, living our, our state of oppression in close proximity, struggling for to get by, struggling over the same uh, poor, poor quality jobs, uh, going to the same poor quality schools, uh, having to deal with the same reactionary police and, and, and institutions that the state uh, imposes in our communities. Uh, and so there's, there's obviously a level of, of, of trauma, frustration, uh, all the different issues. You know, I, I, I uphold and I struggle on behalf of the barrio, but I don't idealize the barrio. I know that the barrio where my community, you know, concentrates, where, where my people live, it's got issues. It's got, you know, there's drug abuse, there's domestic violence, there's all these different issues. And, and, and that's the, the expression of, of an oppressed community that uh, hasn't identified a, a, a struggle uh, for its own best interests. For its future generations. And so when people lash out, they lash out at what's nearest to them, whether it be people in their immediate family or in their immediate community. And that's really the, the core, the essence of this colonial reality, right? You got the colonizer and the colonized, and, and we're both in the status of the colonized peoples. And when we lash out, typically, unless it's a state of, of uh, insurgency, of, 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 of liberatory struggle, we typically uh, lash out against each other. And, and that's uh, the, this thing that they call horizontal violence. And we see it in, in our communities. We see it in the prisons. We see it in our schools. Uh, wherever we're, we're, our group, our peoples, you know, are, are concentrated and there's a lack of revolutionary consciousness. In spaces, though, and I, I need to highlight this, uh, 
uh, you know, there's a historical precedent for that. There's, there's a historical rationale, and, and it, it makes perfect sense uh, uh, to fight against each other when, when, uh, when you know, you're fighting over crumbs and, and, and bones. But, you know, in times when we find and we're able to articulate and we stand up on our own and identify our own historical interests and, and our own class interests, as a people who, who, who are in motion, making our own history, the first thing we identify is our comradeship. And that's what's a beautiful thing. That's the relationship between the party and Union del Barrio. You know, um, whatever happens, happens is we, we know and we take it for granted we're on the same page. And that's not something that's easily built up over, over, over decades with the, the unity, for example, between Union and, and the party. And so uh, when we do have the, the wherewithal and the political leadership and the ideological clarity to, to understand the system we're living in, and when our people, you know, capture and, 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 and seize the time, um, that horizontal violence just kind of dissipates. It's the first thing to disappear, you know, and, and everything that, that goes with it. Um, I, I think that's something that uh, uh, it's the true nature, all this, all the mumbo jumbo we get these days about diversity and inclusion, how we're supposed to be loving each other and the rest of it until, you know, that's just love among slaves. We can never truly love. We can't even love ourselves, much less love another community um, full of self-hate. It's not until we're in the process of, of, of liberatory struggle can we really overcome this kind of horizontal violence. And you see that in the prisons as well. The revolutionary example of, uh, of, of, of the Panthers and, and uh, and the struggles inside the the prisons and and how it was manifest in the unity with uh, black and brown unity in in, in different moments of, within our communities and within the prisons and 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 the rest of it. So I think um, it's important to to view these things uh, and not fall into this kind of liberal notion that it's oh it's a question of racism. Um, I think that's a, a an easy. Watering, watering down of something that that, that, that merits a, a deeper anti-colonial analysis. Um, I wanted to uh, really piggyback off what you're saying and ask you a question, Marco. Some people argue that um, the struggles that we have between each other, uh, black and brown people, are actually racist struggles and that we are racist towards each other or use the term anti-blackness. Do you think that this is an accurate framework to use? Harry put it really well. The framework that he laid out, I think, is the correct framework to be looking at uh, at this issue of anti-blackness, racism, in particular when we're talking about the United States. The, the issue here in the United States, from my point of view, is that most of us are centering our politics on this nationalistic mindset. We, we view our politics in a vacuum of of uh, the impacts of the United States and just the United States on colonized peoples, right? And um, and when we allow ourselves to to be taken over by this politics, uh, this colonial politics, then we use those colonial tools against other colonized people because white supremacy, the system that we currently live in, is structured in such a way where that is the best way to ascend, to become somebody of yourself. Um, it is to be, you know, somebody that is against their own community. It is to display violence against other colonized groups. I think, as Harry stated, 
that if we are to come to a place of unity, it's going through it's going to actually come through revolutionary struggle against this colonial white supremacist system. Are there people in our communities, communities that are raza, communities that are Mexican, Central American, South American, indigenous? Uh, are there communities that say anti-black or or you know uh, disparaging things against uh, the African diaspora? Most most definitely, that happens. That certainly does happen. But when we start to create a politics of oh that community that colonized indigenous community is anti-black, I believe that what ends up happening is that colonized people focus more on other colonized people than it does on fighting our collective enemy, which is white supremacy. I think it's safe to say that uh, the contradiction that you laid out uh, so very well, Marco, um, uh, basically has to do with a class contradiction, uh, which then again takes us back towards this question of colonialism, right? The question of colonialism versus racism isn't just a concern of semantics. It's a concern of what we would say, to what end are we struggling? Those are the questions that you both are raising here. So, Harry, Union del Barrio is an anti-colonial organization. Can you tell us about how you got involved in Union as well? What's Union's position on the struggle for indigenous land? My... uh... My thinking of, uh, about this uh, situation of uh, anti-blackness, I think it's, it's important um, for us as, as comrades, right? Because, uh, you know, we're on this show right now and we're talking as comrades. And, and the, the sense of, of, uh, of anti-blackness, because I, I think this is something that's become really pronounced in, in liberal circles uh, within, uh, you know, uh, university settings or nonprofits and especially in social media. There's, there's been a lot uh, here to... Uh, even among Rasa, uh, uh, progressive people who, who are Rasa, um, really kind of emphasize and, and, and reproduce the thinking about, well, we got to um, uh, squash and, and, and stop being anti-Black and, 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 and uh, stop being, uh, stop centering ourselves and, 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 and advance uh, 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 Black voices and Black bodies. And there's all sorts of little... Uh, uh, phrases and, and, and terms that are used in these kind of liberal circles. I think it's important, you know, sometimes to, to really understand that uh, that's not what we want to reproduce uh, as, as, as comrades. What we want to be down is what we want to, to, to emulate and reproduce. It's not that we want to be black, it's that we want to be comrades. We want to actually reproduce uh, the, 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 and emulate the history of black power struggle. And, and, and that's the key, right? It's, 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 it's struggling for power. And when you do that, you honor uh, uh, our, our African comrades. And because uh, of the, the revolutionary leadership that's come down, the revolutionary solidarity that's been expressed over time. Because, you know, there are going to be, there's, there's some, there's in Mexico, you know, among the, in the Mexican community, or even in the indigenous community, there's pigs that are, that are Mexican. There's pigs that are that are indigenous. There's pigs <coughs> that are LGBTQ. There, there's pigs. There's 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 pigs everywhere, and so you're not gonna. We don't unite 
with 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 a pig, and that pig can be brown, that pig can be black, that pig can be gay, that pig can be straight. That's still a pig. So you don't you don't uh, uh, condition your solidarity based on an identity. You base you base it on on comradeship and a, and a, and a and a common struggle for liberation. That's why you know the first time and this kind of leads into the question of, of um, how I, I, I came and was introduced to struggle within Unión del Barrio. We're talking about, geez, when the Hoover House was still in Oakland. Um, must have been the early 1990s, maybe 1990, 1991. And I remember it was uh, uh, African Liberation Day, and there was an activity in a big hall in in, uh, in Oakland. And I was there with uh, Ernesto Bustillos and, and Juan Parino, two, the two founders of Unión del Barrio. And I was a kid. I must have been 18 years old. And so, you know, we were hearing the speeches that day, and I had never heard anything like it. You know you hear revolutionary uh, language or revolutionary ideas when you hear it, and, and it touches something in your soul that uh, if you haven't heard it before, and the first time it was really getting to me. And I was into it, and I was standing up, and I was saying, hoo I had heard, you know, the chairman, and the day had, uh, had been incredible. This was an APSP event, an Uhuru event. And then uh, compañera Penny Hess gets up there, and this uh, little white lady gets up there and starts saying all sorts of revolutionary stuff. And I was like, wow, I never knew that those uh, white people were talking like that. It was the most incredible thing I'd ever experienced in my life. Uh, and, and at that point, I really did understand uh, there was a difference, uh, a different way to approach uh, solidarity and, and, and comradeship that, uh, that transcended these things. And, uh, you know, and, and anybody, and I don't think I, for your, for your audience and, and this show in particular, I don't have to explain the principled relationship that the Solidarity Committee has with the Uhuru movement. To have that kind of principled solidarity, that kind of principled revolutionary consciousness be flowing around there and, and not, not being hung on a, on, a, on a particular identity that's really kind of just skin deep, but one that's historically situated on, on overturning uh, our oppression. That's a, that's a, it was an incredible change. And I think when people see that, then all the other kind of neo neoliberal kind of kind of uh, happy diversity and inclusion stuff, anti blackness or pro blackness and all these other things kind of drop away for the kind of um, shallow uh, uh, reformist kinds of agendas that they that they represent. As far as uh, how Unión del Barrio understands colonialism, I, I'll be brief. I know we're running out of time, but this 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 is a, a difficult thing to sum up briefly. But uh, you know we we understand it as uh, the fundamental uh, relationship that it was initiated in 1492 when Europeans first landed on uh, this part of the world, we understand it as, uh, uh, and since 1492, there was a, a relationship to, to wealth, uh, power, and, and, and economics that uh, uh, made us subservient to, to the interests of, uh, of, uh, of uh, foreign colonial power. And everything that is derived from that uh, uh, historical uh, Colonial relationship, uh, whether they be universities or, or, or like going back to our earlier conversation on public schools or policing, all of those things, they, they're not broken. And, and they, they're, they're actually reproducing that colonial relationship that was initiated in 1492 for us and, 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 and for the African population uh, that, that began to, to, to supplement the, the, the labor force and then became the, the, the pedestal upon which capitalists uh, means of production uh, operated since then. So we understand that colonialism is is the pedestal. Is uh, it was the genocide of indigenous peoples and the enslavement of black people that really 
formed the, the basis upon which the entire world economy uh, has operated since that time. And, and they're really, no one's except, exempt from it. Even revolutionary countries operate within the, the, the context of a, of a colonial capitalist world economy. But it's the unity of this world economy and, and it has different manifestations. Some of them portend or, or point to a, a revolutionary transformation, but they still are a function of that original relationship. And so Union del Barrio understands it as such. And that's why, you know, even our, in our imagery and our iconography, the logo of our organization is, is uh, the Caballero Aguila Cuauhtémoc, uh, which was, uh, an, was an indigenous leader that led the struggle against Spanish colonialism and the final resistance uh, uh, before the fall of Tenochtitlan, which is now Mexico City in 1519. And we identify, you know, earlier today you mentioned uh, uh, Vicente Guerrero and the War of Independence. There's also uh, uh, Jose Maria Morelos y Pavón, which was an incredible leader. We're coming up on the 16th of September pretty soon. And, you know, he was... Uh, a tremendous leader and insurgent uh, for for our revolutionary struggle, independence struggle in Mexico. He was uh, half indigenous and 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 half African, and you know that that kind of history is reproduced throughout uh, uh, Mexican and Latin American uh, history. Uhuru Marco, on this call we are in the company of several educators, and there is a history of educators and students at the front line of the resistance in several Mexican and indigenous communities. Is that an accurate statement? It's it's a uh, it's more than an accurate statement. Uh, it is the statement. To this day, the students of las escuelas rurales throughout Mexico, the few that are left, the few that continue their resistance, their revolutionary resistance, most notably, no, most notably, uh, la escuela Raúl Isidro Burgos de Ayotzinapa, Guerrero, where uh, where a couple years ago, forty three uh, students went missing. Those 43 students became synonymous with revolutionary struggle within education and gave further rise to an uprising of students throughout Mexico. And at the same time, uh, throughout South America and Central America, uh, there were students, student uprisings as well from uh, Brazil uh, against uh, its, the fascist uh, coup d'etat in Bolivia uh, against the uprising of fascism as well. Uh, that eventually led to the coup of uh, Evo Morales. And, and, and here in the United States, I would say that African uh, and indigenous students from California to New York have been at the forefront of revolutionary, uh, not just uh, conscious building, but organizing as well uh, against this white supremacist system. You are listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU. Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our show today is entitled Black and Brown Unity, The Time is Now. Our guests are Harry Simone of Union del Barrio and Marco Emeral, school teacher and South Bay Union District Board of Trustees member in San Diego, California. Uhuru Harry, the 50th anniversary of the Chicano Moratorium is upon us this month. Also, the 50th anniversary of the establishment of Chicano Park in San Diego just passed. Can you tell our listeners what the Chicano Moratorium was? As well, what is the importance of both these events to the Chicano Revolution? Thanks, comrade, for that question. Um, it, it's really uh, good of you to, to bring up these two historical moments. You know, uh, during the period of the Black Civil Rights and then the Black Power Movement in the U.S., there was a, a, a thriving, a very powerful and important uh, Chicano movement, as well as uh, 
an indigenous movement led by the American Indian movement. There were movements all around the world. Struggle, you know, revolutionary struggle was was the main trend around the world. And and within the U.S., uh, our communities uh, had our our moment. And 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 it was during that period when to these two events that you referred to, the the takeover of Chicano Park in in, uh, in Barrio Logan in San Diego, California, as well as the August 29th uh, Chicano Moratorium March in, in Los Angeles and East LA uh, were taking place. The Chicano Moratorium in LA, which is it's the 50th anniversary is coming up this August 29th, was a, a massive march. It had been a series of different marchas that had taken place, primarily uh, uh, generally motivated as in opposition to the Vietnam War. Um, and, and of course, this was in solidarity for with with uh, struggle independent uh, for the for the liberation of the Vietnamese people, but it was a situation coming down where, just like any of the other imperial wars of, of this country, Rasa soldiers were were using being used as uh, cannon fodder, which means they were being sent out and dying and, and killed in, in combat at, at rates much higher than than our percentage of the population. It was a similar dynamic that was happening with the the black soldiers, the African soldiers in in Vietnam, and so the Chicano moratorium uh, was was just that was a a call that there be a moratorium on recruitment uh, and and deployment of, of Raza Chicano uh, Chicanos to the to the Vietnam War and and so this this was the culmination this was the biggest in a series of marches taking place during that period in in in, uh, in the Southwest uh, and culminated in East LA which is a, a very old a historic barrio of of Los Angeles what came out later in in, in documents related to Cointelpro and and different uh, FBI uh, and, and U.S. Uh, law enforcement agencies. Uh, COINTELPRO, what is what was COINTELPRO? COINTELPRO was a program, a counterintelligence program, uh, initially uh, developed by the FBI under the leadership of uh, J. Edgar Hoover to uh, disrupt and destroy uh, the revolutionary capacity of, of the black community in particular. Uh, and, and to be even more specific, it was... Uh, of the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. And as it, it gained a foothold in, in disrupting the revolutionary activities, in particular in, in, uh, uh, in the state of California, uh, COINTELPRO was deployed to other movements and to disrupt other movements, uh, uh, such as the American Indian Movement and the Chicano Movement. And so uh, it was, this was a, a government uh, initiative to, to undermine and destroy those organizations and that kind of political leadership that was uh, taking shape during that period, but also uh, it was extended to to undermine our capacity for for independent struggle and and, and organizing, uh, which ended up uh, you know flooding our barrios and our in our in our neighborhoods with uh, with cheap drugs and and that's where you you have the prison economy really take off was in that context, and so they start uh, locking up generations of of our of our working class leadership, and so. Um, Cointelpro was was deployed uh, to to disrupt the Chicano movement, and the, this is what occurred in in Los Angeles. Uh, there was about thirty, uh, some say up to about forty thousand people uh, marching in Los Angeles, and it wasn't, of course, just against the Vietnam War. There was demands for education and political power, and and all sorts of uh, a whole range of, of demands that this this mancha was 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 making on the system. But really, it was an anti imperialist, anti war position, and so uh, the police repressed it. And and uh, ended up killing uh, multiple people. One uh, one of the, the people was a, a really respected and well known uh, journalist for the LA Times. He was the first Rasa journalist that was working for the LA Times, and uh, and, and they shot him with a, uh, a projectile through his head. 
And so um, that became uh, sort of like a, a benchmark. That's when the movement went from uh, one uh, sort of operating within this kind of framework of looking for accommodations and changes, uh, peacefully protesting, and it really became clear that the system wasn't going to accept our movement. It was within that context that, and, and this kind of uh, kind of popular uprising, so to speak, that uh, Chicano Park was was also taken over in San Diego. You know, the movement was there was a lot of new activists and young people and. The Brown Berets were, were leading the struggle. People were forming Mechas all over the place, which is a student youth organization that was uh, founded during that period. And uh, and the barrio in Logan Heights, it's uh, it's a, it's an unusual barrio. It's an unusual Mexican community because it's been uh, multiply, multiply, uh, multiple ways uh, uh, really devastated by the infrastructure of, of the city of San Diego. It was split in half by the building of the five freeway. Then it was destroyed uh, into quarters by the building of the Coronado Bridge. And so as the community was being destroyed and people were being displaced, uh, activists in the community insisted on change. And so there was a series of meetings, hundreds and hundreds of meetings have been gone to to demand at the bare minimum that the city provide a park. It was it was the, the kids didn't have a place to go to, to a park. And and so the city said, OK, we're building the Coronado Bridge. We'll give you a park under under the bridge. And so that was the agreement the city committed to. And it, it, it got out that uh, the city had deployed uh, uh, construction workers and they had taken the tractors and the word got out that they were building a highway patrol station instead of building the park that they had promised. And so word spread in the, in the neighborhood. This is pre-cell phone, pre-internet, pre people just got word of mouth and got out and the berets mobilized, the students mobilized, the parents mobilized, the, the lowriders mobilized everybody else. And soon the word got out and there were thousands of people in the park and they took over the park. They got there and it was about 12 days. They occupied the park. And it wasn't, you know, this sort of like a kumbaya kind of moment where, where you know, we just want a park. It really became then, and it settled in, that this was kind of like a retaking of what, something that had been taken from us. And so when the neighborhood got a little bit of taste of what it meant to have your own piece of land, it reflected back that, that this land was stolen from us. It, it, it made us remember that we're native to this land and all sorts of different things started welling up by having a little piece of land. And it's not even a, that great of a piece of land, but it's, but it's ours. And, and since then it's been 15 years, 50 years that we've been defending that park and not one inch of it has been given up since, since that period. And the city has tried everything. The white nationalist groups, uh, white power groups have, have tried everything. People have been coming into the park for a while. And if they look for trouble, they get trouble. It's the one thing in San Diego County that unites all the raza. They say they're threatening Chicano Park. And like, you know, they did a couple of years ago. It was like 2016 and then 2017. You know, we had about an hour and a half, two hours notice. The, the white nationalists were going to try to get into the park. Within two hours, we had almost 2,000 people in the park. It's that kind of space. And it just captures everything. It captures our, it's our key, sort of like uh, our way we understand our own history and our place in it. And uh and that's at the 50th anniversary. So both of those celebrations were supposed to be massive. Chicano Park, as well as the, the, the march, was supposed to be massive in L.A., the 50th commemoration. But obviously this, this virus, man, it's been, you know, it's not just been taking our people. It's, 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 it's taken away our ability to, to mark these important dates. Uh, of course, you know, we're going we're gonna to recover from this and we're going to mark these dates uh, in the near future. But it, it was a hard hit. It was a hard hit. I'm on the steering committee, on the Chicano Park Steering Committee. Um, I'm also, Union del Barrio also is, is part of the organizing right. steering committee uh, of, uh, of the August 29th March in L.A. 
And, you know, the Huru movements, you got, you know, the Black Power Movement, the Black Liberation Movement has a lot of these similar kinds of experiences. So you know what I'm talking about. I was there. I've been to St. Louis. I've been to the Huru House. I've seen you all raise that yeah, flag. Yeah. And that feeling that you all get in the, in the, in the neighborhood in, 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 in Ferguson, when you all raise that flag and, and you get that feeling inside of you and you know you're seeing, you know you're observing our revolutionary capacity. What we're Maybe we're not doing it right there, but it gives you a taste of what we're capable of doing if we get our things right, if we get our minds right, if we get our organization right. I want to emphasize the size of that flag in St. Louis. It's about as big as like, it's like two houses. It's huge. And anybody from San Diego, you know, the, the there's the big Mexican flag that's on the U.S.-Mexico border. Mexico built this massive flag over there. And it's like that big. It is big. And so I, I just wanted to point that out. It's not just the black power of the, the flag itself, but the size of it. And, and it's really in, in the working class area of, of the city. It's, it's a trip. And so I, I want to just emphasize that. That's what Chicano Park is. That's what, that's what it is for, for us in San Diego and all over the place. People, it's known all over. It's the collect, largest collection of outdoor murals in the world. Uhuru. I, I, I really appreciate that because sometimes um, when I'm in St. Louis, I just stand there and look at that flag. And um, yeah, it's, it's 50 feet up in the air. It's yeah, it's a it's an official actual national flag. So um, I b- appreciate you raising that. Um, I wanted to um, just transition uh, to Marco and just ask you, Marco, um, are you optimistic about the revolutionary struggle? And is there anything that you just want to share with our listeners? Uhuru. Revolutionaries need to be optimistic about the revolution. That's my opinion. That doesn't take away from us being critical dialectical, um, and truly grounding our analysis at any given point in time uh, on, a, on a pure historical fact-based analysis. But today, in the face of uh, arguably the, the largest rise of fascism in many decades, I believe that revolutionaries have a moral obligation to unite in solidarity, to organize in solidarity and not just against this wave of fascism that is taking root and is taking power, but for a revolutionary anti-colonial system, a revolutionary system that is not just democratic in, 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 in speech, but revolutionary democratic in practice. So currently, We need to take, in my opinion, we need to take advantage of the political moment that we're living through currently, and we need to do every single thing we can to stoke those flames of revolution against this parasitic system. Because there is a buildup from what I've seen from uh, people in my age group, uh, in the 20 to 35 age group, I have seen uh, an uplifting of revolutionary consciousness that I have only seen in my history books. Uh, Have it be the Black Liberation Movement of the 60s and the Chicano Movement of the 60s. Have that be uh, the revolutionary era of the early 1900s. That's what I think we're going through currently, or we are on the heels of. And I believe that now it is the time to organize, comrades. I believe now is the time to unite. It is time to get our communities together um, and join the struggle for revolution and join the struggle for true liberation of all our communities. I, I, and, and, I, and I truly do believe, and I'm saying this as, 
as an individual. Collectives like uh, the Uhuru movement, like Union del Barrio and Piram, need to be at the forefront of that revolutionary struggle. Not individuals, not uh, progressive organizations. It needs to be organizations that have a historical grounding in revolutionary struggle. Uh, and, and I and, and I say that from a from a purely uh, analytical viewpoint of history that I know it's not going to be any individual that gets us to that place of liberation. It will be collectives and organizations, revolutionary organizations, such as the ones um, that I have the privilege to speak to today. Harry, I want to ask you the same thing. Are you optimistic about the future? And is there anything else you can share with our listeners? Also, if our listeners would like to get in touch with Union del Barrio, how can they reach you? Compa Marco, thank you for for uh, that last uh, comment. That's a, a righteous way to to sum it up. Um, and you know, I think uh, you know we're on the same page as far as that's concerned. On this issue of optimism, you know, it's um, I have to be honest. You know, like you know, you you've been when when I've been involved in struggle. I don't remember a period in my life where I wasn't involved in struggle. I have no memory. Uh, of my life before struggle, and so um, it's kind of a trip. And and I, I hadn't felt uh, optimism. I don't know. It's not too often where where I get a chance to to feel that in a subjective sense, right? Uh, as an emotion, objectively speaking, uh, I see the crisis. I, I I can understand and I can navigate this crisis uh, that we're all living through through a political lens. What I worry about is is that uh, the speed at which, and I know that, you know, when our people get into motion and, and, and they, they, they advance in, by leaps and bounds, um, but there's just so many tools that the system, that the state and that the colonial state has to slow or to block their access to this kind of revolutionary science. That's what I worry. And, and you know, that the fact that you've got this radio show, that, that, that makes me feel comfort. But I know it's still not going to be enough. Uh, it's got to reach all of our, our the masses of working uh, African working class and within these borders. Within uh, we have to reach and do more a hundred, a thousand times more. Unión del Barrio has to do a thousand times more than what we're doing right now. It's and and it's not just the the colonial state, but as it's growing through its crisis, it's taken its 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 crisis out on us. We we bear the burden of its vi- of its violence. We bear the burden of its virus. We bear the burden of its of its environmental degradation. We bear the burden of its insecurities and its and its cultural calamity. Uh, we bear the burden every time that they find a way to charge somebody. We end up being having the ones pay for this thing. You know, like I have this conversation about what's happening in Mexico and the narco violence. It's like, man, you know, people get high in the U.S. and 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 we die. You know, we we're the ones that are stacking the dead bodies and and narco violence in, in Mexico and 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 it's 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 a, it's a really a, a terrible time but I know uh, and and I don't know if it's this is the same thing as optimism it's just kind of like a kind of an objective material understanding that the deeper the crisis gets the greater the revolutionary potential so in that sense um, I, I wouldn't call it optimism but something's got to give and uh, this thing is is uh, poisonous all the way around and it's crumbling under its own weight. Uh, we just got to make sure we don't, uh, the faster and, and, and more efficient we are at, at our, at our job of, of winning the masses of our people to a revolutionary consciousness, the less, uh, the fewer, uh, uh, people will die of, of these viruses and, 
and, and of these terrible crises that's going on. So, you know, the African population in St. Pete, you know, um, I'm, a, I'm a Chicano from Southern California. And, and, and I came across the Huru movement and, and I, was, I was one to a revolutionary consciousness. Uh, since then, I've been in Unión del Barrio and, and, and the Huru movement has deeply influenced the thinking and the approach and the priorities of Unión del Barrio. We have our own history, a deep, deep history that goes back, you know, to 1492. Um, we were there our, our, at the takeover of Chicano Park. Some of our, our, our founders were at the Chicano Moratorium. We're, our members are, are, are playing a role in ethnic studies struggles. Are doing, uh, we run our Saturday school. We have uh, uh, our, our struggle against gang injunctions and, and all this, the, the, our, our women's commission, all of this. But the Uhuru movement has left its stamp on, on Union del Barrio. And uh, I consider that's where sort of like our friendship gets nourished by our comradeship, but it's always based on the comradeship prim- primarily, and, and then the friendship comes secondary. And people who, who are in an organized struggle understand that, you know? So I think that's what makes me happy in, in a subjective way, uh, being able to talk this way, and we get each other, we understand each other. They, in the end, like if people want to get in touch with Unión del Barrio, oh. there's people in St. Peter, wherever this, this uh, show uh, is being uh, listened to, um, you know, we're, we're on social media as, as we need to be. Uh, we have, we have multiple events that are coming up. Um, you're welcome to join us. A lot of those events that we're doing these days are, are virtual or online. You can, uh, check out our page on uniondelbarrio.org. That's, uh, uniondelbarrio.org. And our, uh, handle on social media is, uh, at uniondelbarrio and, and we'll pop up right away. So once again, as, as I open, I want to wrap this up and, you know, thank you deeply for, for your invitation of having us on this show. Uh, uh, and, and this message uh, goes out to anybody who's out there and you can't figure things out in, in your space and, and you want to get organized, you want to be a, a part of the process of revolutionary change, then, then, then join the Uhuru movement. And, and again, um, the, the, the value that you uh, have in, in the leadership of uh, Chairman Omari Yeshitela, that has to be... Uh, uh, reproduced a, a thousand times over. So uh, on behalf of Union del Barrio and the general membership of, of Union del Barrio and the Central Committee of Union del Barrio, we say thank you and we salute you for, for your uh, uh, revolutionary leadership and, uh, and your example. Uh, gracias, compañeras, compañeros, uhuru. Uhuru. And we thank you just the same, comrade. Our show today is entitled Black and Brown Unity. The time is now. And our guests are Harry Simon of Union del Barrio and Marco Amaral, school teacher in South Bay Union School District Board Trustee in San Diego, California. The People's War Radio Show is produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 in St. Petersburg, Florida. WBPU is a project of the African People's Education and Defense Fund, a nonprofit organization whose mission is to defend the human rights and civil rights of the African community and address the grave disparities faced by African people in education, healthcare, and economic development. For more information on the African People's Education and Defense Fund, visit us at apedf.org. Episodes of the People's War Radio Show are available on the Black Power Talks podcast on wubp.podbean.com. For updates and resources to fight the coronavirus, or to volunteer with Project Black Ankh, visit developmentforafrica.org. We'd like to thank our guests, Harry Simone, 
and Marco Amaral for joining us today. We'd also like to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in. Y'all can talk about all these viruses, and that's good, but you can't forget the main one. It's plaguing us, bro. Down with the colonial virus. 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 Colonial virus is why I can't live. That thing gotta go. You gotta go. We don't wanna have to deal with this. No more. Down with the colonial virus. 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 The colonial virus is why I'm. Need for constant inebriation.